have opted for freedom. Freedom is a really important value for me. My aim is to have an interesting life and do interesting work. We just all need to feel that, we, that we're not wasting our lives. Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. My guest today on the Workle Happiness Podcast is Christina Patterson. Christina is a writer, broadcaster, non-executive director and consultant. She's been a director of the Poetry Society, journalist for The Independent, where she interviewed writers, artists, poets, rock stars, comedians, film directors, actors and musicians. Christina has written two books, The Art of Not Falling Apart and Outside the Sky is Blue, a family memoir. And if that weren't enough, she reviews fiction and non-fiction for The Sunday Times, writes columns for The Guardian, and interviews and features for The Sunday Times magazine and The Daily Mail, and is a regular guest on radio and TV programmes. Christina is also a certified professional coach. Welcome, Christina. So, Christina, you read English at university at Durham, so you must have been keen on on English through your school years. Was that the case? Yes, I was an obsessive reader throughout childhood. I was always reading. And I remember once um, sitting reading an Iris Murdoch with a cup of coffee and a piece of cake. I must have been a teenager and literally crying with happiness and thinking life doesn't get better than this which you know now seems like rather a modest expectation from life but yes I I absolutely loved reading and it was a natural choice for me to do a degree in English and I have broadly worked in sort of related fields ever since. And, and my my wife read English at Southampton and then did an MA in English and she she reckons that destroyed her love of English and reading, and she didn't read again for many years. That clearly <laughs> wasn't the case with you. Well, I do understand that up to a point. I did an MA as well. I did an MA at the University of East Anglia, and um, it's now, in fact, it was a bit famous at the time, but it's even more famous now for its MA in creative writing. Um, and I was taught by people like Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter and Lorna Sage. But needless to say, I didn't do the creative writing one because I always had that sense of I am not worthy. I mean, completely appropriate sense that, you know, there have been all these greats of literature. And who would I be to even think of adding to that? Which is why I was you know, extremely old before I actually wrote and published my first book. Um, and I did the academic part equivalent to that MA, which um, so some of the people who did the creative writing bit had to do some of our modules and mine was and I sort of drifted into it because I, I did well academically and my tutors said, have you thought of a career in academia and I thought, oh, that sounds quite nice and obviously after doing my MA I thought count me out you know I mean I, it seems incredible at the time that you can sit around reading George Eliot, a sort of essentially um, paid for by the taxpayer because those were the days when you know uh, one could get these things without well I got a certainly a grant for the tuition and um, and I thought oh it's all a bit lonely and miserable I don't think I want to carry 
are you doing this? And now that seems like unbelievable self-indulgence. But I don't think I would ever want a career in academia. I'm not keen on that sort of plowing a, a single furrow approach to life. I have, um, it, it took me a long time to become a journalist, but I had the journalist butterfly mind. And, um, and what I, where I do share your wife's view is my, um, so much of my work has been related to reading that most of the books I read are in some ways to do with work, either a book I have to review or keeping up with the news, which was slightly easier when I was younger because you had these things called newspapers, which came, I mean, there were an awful lot of them, but there wasn't this absolute sense that every minute that you had to read the whole internet from scratch all over again. So that's that's the kind of, you know, if you're, if you're a journalist and you, um, and you work with books uh, and, I'm taking a break from my own podcast at the moment, but most of the guests on my podcast have written books. There's always a book to read for work. So my idea of bliss is to read a book called Pure Pleasure, but I very rarely do that. So I completely understand your wife's approach on that. And so having finished your MA, um, you clearly decided that you wanted to stay in the world of literature. So what happened next? How did you make that first step into a working world from the world of academia? Well, I, I would think I was very naive about careers in those days. Both my parents, my, my mother was a teacher, my father was a civil servant. Almost everybody in my entire extended family worked in public service in one way or another. And I was brought up to believe that um, public service was the most important thing. In fact, in some ways, the only thing to do. And there's a very strong part of me that still believes that actually, which is partly, um, partly why I have huge psychological and emotional struggles with writing for myself you know if I, I don't have I have a book idea until I have a commission it doesn't feel like work it feels like indulgence so I wasn't clear at all what I wanted to do I knew I sort of vaguely wanted to do something Englishy and I looked at publishing and um, I did apply for a couple of jobs in a rather sort of lackluster way and I remember going back to my parents after finishing my MA and in fact I remember while I was doing my MA and I put this in um, I think my my first book might be my second but I can't remember my father actually wrote me a letter on blue basil and bond paper and in capital letters at the top he wrote on rendering unto Caesar and it was all about how um, if you had had the privilege of um, he said most people leave school at 16, you know, they then pay taxes to, you know, support society. Those who stay on until 18 are the privileged ones. Those who go on to university are even more privileged. Those who do an MA are even more privileged. And, and essentially his, his message was get a job, love. I'm not, you know, <laughs> get a grip. You've got a job. Your, 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 your kind of responsibility is to pay taxes and contribute to society. Um, so then I panicked and wandered down Guildford High Street, which is where my parents lived and uh, handed around my CV and got a job in a bookshop for a while, which was great fun actually. And having spent um, uh, four years sort of, you know, deconstructing literature and particularly at uh, University of East Anglia, reading these French theorists who completely freaked me out after Sir Gawain and the Green Knight at Durham. I was then reading Baudrillard and, uh, and Bart and Derrida and these very obscure kind of, you know, um, post-structuralists and, and so on. Um, it was a relief just to kind of carry around great boxes of books and rip open the cardboard and you know and run up and down stairs all day and um 
And then I, I realized I couldn't do that forever, or at least if I did, I would be earning, I think my first, I think my salary at that time was something like 4,800 a year. And that clearly was not going to get me very far. Um, uh, not that unfortunately I've made terribly lucrative choices since then, but um, uh, so I decided, I, I understood, was told that to get into publishing, which I decided I wanted to do, um, it was helpful to, do a, and yet another course which my father very very grudgingly uh, helped me pay for it's a three-month course at London College of Printing we were taught by retired printers uh, who you know had huge contempt for these middle-class youngsters who'd studied Keats and so on uh, and and didn't bother to hide it and then I got my first job in publishing uh, with a company called ANC Black and then I got a job at Faber um, so I started off in publishing and then actually in my mid-20s I got ill and um, and I ended up taking another route. So so talk to us about um, publishing. I'm assuming that what you were doing was reviewing um, texts that came in and deciding if they were right, or were you no no the actually or, no my no my first job my first job was as a publicity assistant. So it was writing marketing copy and press releases and basically everything involved in publicizing books. And I remember on my first day in that job, this was pre-computer and um, I'd done a kind of vague typing course at this place in Charing Cross Road called Sight and Sound, but not very conscientiously. And um, you just, you know, learn to do keyboard typing. Uh, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, and, uh, and I'd said, obviously, I, I thought I could type. And then on my first day, when I had to type an actual letter on an actual typewriter, I realized I couldn't really. And I filled up an entire waste paper bin full of these discarded efforts. Um, so I was publicizing books on their list. And then I think I'd only been there for about less than a year. And a job came up at Faber and Faber. And I thought, ooh, Faber and Faber, they published T.S. Eliot, blah, blah. And amazingly, it was only a six month maternity leave. And again, it seems very reckless now, but I gave up a permanent job for to cover a maternity leave because I liked the idea of, of working at Faber. And also because six months when you're 24 sounds like quite a long time. You know? So I went and did that and that was great and very exciting. And I met Seamus Heaney and Ted Hughes and all these people. But while I was there, I went on holiday to um, Greece, got back, got a pain in my left ankle. It spread up to my knees. Within a week, I had this crippling pain. And it, that my sort of, you know, life, not my life, but, you know, my normal life came to a juddering halt, really. I sort of managed the rest of my contract with walking sticks very, I must have cut quite a, a sad figure actually, because I could not walk without being in sort of something like complete agony. And the hospital, I went, I had blood tests at University College Hospital. They lost them a year later. I was told over the phone by a receptionist that I had um, what I understood to be an incurable autoimmune disease called lupus. So um, I was ended up at 26 I then was with this diagnosis of an incurable autoimmune disease unemployed thinking my future was in tatters so it was not not a happy time in my life everybody's sitting listening to this or walking or running listening to this and they're thinking what happened next so part of this story was that when I was 14 I went to a youth club in order to meet boys and the youth club was attached to a Baptist church which I hadn't fully realized and um, and within a few weeks, my friend Louise and I 
had accepted the call from the very charismatic preacher, David Pawson, to accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and become essentially fundamentalist Christians. And um, I, by 26, was extremely angry that this God that I had been introduced to and felt that I had been faithfully serving was apparently blessing and prospering all my friends and giving them lovely jobs and boyfriends and all the rest of it. And I had been told that the Lord wanted to heal me and was constantly going for prayer. And I had this, you know, awful, awful debilitating disease. So in the end, um, to put it politely, I told God to go away, which is not what I actually wrote in my diary. And that was kind of the end of that chapter of my life. And I sort of started um, having been from the age of 14 within this very sort of and I'm not anti-religious, by the way, you know, I, I believe that, uh, I believe there are any number of ways to interpret and deal with the complexity of life on this planet, but I am anti-fundamentalism and what I experienced was fundamentalism. So I had to sort of start again, I'd kind of missed out on adolescence. I saw a doctor who referred me to um, a psychotherapist at her practice. I had psychotherapy, I knew nothing about it really. And gradually, and I got a job initially, a part-time job at the South Bank Centre in London, promoting the literature programme there. Eventually got a job working on the literature programme full-time. And that led to my, so I had some years working in arts admin um, and then moving on to the Poetry Society. And, um, and I think a combination of doing work I enjoyed, which as you know, is the kind of theme that like you, I'm very interested in. Um, and being absorbed in something and kind of getting on with life and getting the psychological support that I clearly needed. Some combination of those things worked and I got better and I've basically been fine since. I've had a few blips uh, physically. I've had, I think, I think many of us have a kind of weak spot that can flare up when we're under stress or in distress. And um, I have had flare ups I haven't had a flare up of the pain for many years now. Um, and I think, and again, this is kind of, these are deep waters to wade into, but I grew up, my sister had schizophrenia and was a, a wonderful, but you know, quite a difficult person. And um, I think I had huge guilt about being the well, clever, younger sister who apparently had a charmed life. So I made damn sure I didn't have a charmed life. And there was a kind of sense of equalizing things, which sort of worked in relation to my sister, but unfortunately, you know, dis knocked down all the structures of my life at the same time. So I, I'm a great believer in the whole person, really. I think if we are, I think we all carry our distress in different ways. I carry mine, or I used to carry mine physically. Um, nowadays, there's a huge emphasis, uh, rightly in many ways, on the importance of mental health. I think there's often a lot of vagueness that goes with that. When people talk about mental health issues, they very rarely mean actual mental illness like schizophrenia. They usually mean stress or anxiety, which are both important, but they are certainly not the full gamut of um, mental distress. And I think dealing with one's own mental distress or, or just circumstantial distress is one thing. Dealing with other people's is something, you know, we also need help in doing because if you love people and they are suffering, that's a very hard thing to deal with. So I, I absolutely believe that those of us in the world who are lucky enough to have a choice about how we 
earn a living and how we get food on the table. You know, it is about kind of getting some balance between paying the bills and a sense of feeling you're contributing something and um, ideally liking your colleagues. You don't get to choose your colleagues, but that plays an enormous part in the joy or lack of it you get in your daily work life. And also, I think most people are creative in one way or another, and we mostly want to feel we're creating something, whether that's redecorating a room, cooking a nice meal, or writing a Booker Prize winning novel. I think, you know, ideally, we all want to aim to get some mix of those things that kind of serves us. And that's the challenge we all face all the time, I think, until we're, while we're alive. And do you think those experiences um, took you down the path of the work that you do about workplace contentment, um, becoming a coach? I mean, you feel that was instrumental in you? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think generally speaking, the choices we make are a kind of sort of consequence of the incremental choices we make along the way and, and the things we learn. But yes, absolutely. And I, I know you do, and you, you talked about work hell, and I was just reading your values on the CMI website. And I absolutely agree with all of that in terms of um, organizational culture. Um, I think that, I mean, life just works better when people are as happy as they can be in their circumstances. And we can have unrealistic views of what happiness involves, but, one thing it generally involves is a feeling of um, being, being worth something, doing something that's worthwhile, making a difference to other people. And I do think one of the problems that is extremely pressing now and hugely exacerbated by the rise of social media and online life is that people can feel atomized. And I think traditional communities in so many ways have have broken down the traditional mechanisms for meeting people, for socializing with people, even the workplace where, I mean, I, I went, my, my mother was Swedish. I spent the whole of June on a solo road trip around Sweden, which was great fun. And Swedes have this tradition of uh, fika, which is coffee and a bun or a cake twice a day in the workplace where they stop work, they have a chat with their colleagues, they have a cup of coffee. Um, and as you all know, because this is your area much more than mine, they are you know, good on productivity, but their work hours are considerably lower than ours. And um, you know, it's very hard to get the right balance, but I, I think that we just all need to feel that, we, that we're not wasting our lives. And um, it's incredibly easy to spend hours even looking at Instagram or Twitter or the news or or I don't look, I'm not the TikTok generation, but I imagine it's pretty easy looking at sort of, you know, vaguely witty, but completely unhelpful uh, videos on, on TikTok. I think, I think we all need some grounding and some guidance, and we need to know what we really want, because often what we think we want um, is what we're told we should want by advertisers or influencers or whatever and one of the great things I think about coaching and I'm a, I'm a you know relative newbie coach although I, I I've been interviewing people for 30 years and I do or 25 years whatever it is I do think that in many ways conversation is the bedrock of life and um, asking people questions is really important my people always say to me oh you I can tell you're a journalist because you ask so many questions and I'm sometimes I do sometimes say 
no, it's because my mother brought me up to be polite, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and that, that's it. Conversation is kind of based on asking questions, but also it's fascinating because if you're alive, you should be interested in other people and you want to know about them and their lives. And what I love about coaching is that it's not advising people. It's not giving people guidance. It is literally asking one hopes, probing questions that help people think more deeply. And when you discover for yourself what you want, you're in a much, much better position to try to build a life that will give you more of what you want and less of what you don't want. So that's what I love about it. So, so let's talk about your life as a journalist. Um, you were just saying 25 years interviewing celebrities, the rich and the famous. Um, mm. What have you enjoyed most about that life as a journalist? And I want to ask you separately about your books. Okay. Um, I suspect that's slightly different. Yes. But what have you enjoyed most about that life? And, and, and what's been the, the, the less appealing part of it? <laughs> um, what I've enjoyed most about it is that it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. I think the world is endlessly, infinitely fascinating. People are fascinating. And it's just never, ever boring. Um, I, and I, this sounds awful, but I ran the Poetry Society for three years and I did love it. I had wonderful colleagues. We had such fun. I um, introduced, a, you know, kind of a poetry reading group, which involved, you know, drinking margaritas on the roof. And, and, you know, it was just all great fun. And I did love it. But I remember after three years of having to fill out sort of arts council applications and, and all of that stuff, I just thought, oh no, that's where we are again. I, I, I hate admin. It's, I just, you know, I, I don't know whether many people genuinely love it, but I absolutely hate it. And even though poetry, I, I do love poetry and I like poets and there was so much about that, that was great. The kind of mechanisms of it, I'm, I have minimal interest in process in that, from that point of view, even though I came to journalism quite late, I'm a really typical journalist. And one of the things I struggle with in, in my life now actually is, is I'm not great at planning. Of course, I know how to do it. I can read endless books on it. I just read um, James Clear's Atomic Habits. Great. You know, obviously I haven't done a single thing about changing any of my habits because I never, I never do. Um, with journalism, it's the thing in front of you. You focus on, you focus on your, your deadline, particularly on a daily paper. The deadlines are so tight that it's absolutely relentless. So what you love is also what you hate, you know, because those deadlines and the tight focus mean that you're in a kind of adrenalized state all the time. That means that your focus on the column you have to write or the person you have to interview is very, very good, much better than I'm able to muster most of the time these days, unless I have a, a, a clear deadline that day. And the flip side of what I what you don't like about that is it's extremely stressful. And, um, you know, I used to write a column twice a week and that was where I, I sort of loved it. It was incredibly exciting. But, um, you know, I'd wake up feeling nervous, listening to the Today programme, thinking what's the big issue in the news that day? Um, desperately trying to come up with a sort of fresh and interesting take on it, would then send a message through to my editor, the comment editor, who would either say yes or no. He or she would then go off to morning conference, which is the morning meeting where the editor pronounces on the ideas for the day. And, um, and I, at the end of that, which would be sort of 11-ish, you would either get a sort of yay or nay. If you got a nay, then it would be absolute panic stations and you'd have to muster up a new idea very quickly. If it was yes, 
you then had till sort of three, three, three thirty to write 1050, one hoped sparkling, glittering, interesting words on this subject about which you knew absolutely nothing until this morning. And then you'll get, you know, emails and people saying, you know, if Miss Patterson had done her research, you think, look, I didn't even know about it until nine o'clock this morning. So how much research can you do in that time? So it is very, very stressful. And being in that adrenalized state all the time, um, can feel it can be feel quite unhealthy but you know on the other hand it's fantastic so unfortunately many many things the things one loves about about a, a job or uh, you know have a shadow side don't they and i i deliberately didn't want to um uh group in writing books with that mm. um, because uh, i suspect you're going to say that writing a book is slightly different very different so, yeah so tell us about your experience of writing your two books. So what what led you to to write the first one? Mm. Um, and then how did you find them in the process? And uh, mm. how is it being an author? Mm. Um, well, I had I had been working. I'd wanted to write the story of my family, which is my most recent book, Outside the Skies Blue, for many, many, many years. I wanted to. I felt so desperately sad about my sister's mental illness she she died when I was 36 and she was 41 and um she had a very she was I think the bravest person I knew in fact a, a friend of hers a school friend of hers who recently read my book got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago and and said that I, I have written that in the book and I think it's true and she said that as well and I wanted I wanted to write, I've, I have wanted to write about that and um, the effect on her and on a family, my family for many years. And I had also wanted to write about my experience of um, born again Christianity and fundamentalism. So I'd wanted to do that for many years and I did, and I started many years kind of ago, sort of tinkering around and having a go. And I sort of couldn't find, um, I don't know. I, I mean, writing a book is a difficult thing. This, the most difficult thing is structure, because the structure of a 100,000 word or 80,000 word or whatever it is, Pete, that's very hard to make that taut and compelling, um, particularly when you're very close to the material. So I had written a version of that memoir, which I wasn't happy with and I didn't want to send out to people. And when I lost my job at The Independent, which is now nine years ago, that was a very, very traumatic thing for me. Um, there were cuts, editorial cuts. Um, and I was at that point, probably one of the more expensive people there having not earned very much for most of my I mean, of course, everything's relative, but journalists generally don't are not high earners. And by the end of my time there, having asked done that scary thing of asking for a pay rise and getting a substantial pay rise. Um, I was, you know, probably relatively expensive on the paper. And um, and then, uh, you know, we we were all told, the colonists were told that we were kind of, were on our way out in terms of money. But what was incredibly painful was that um, I think all the other colonists kept their column except me. And there was, I won't go into details, but a young man who I think had it in for me. And I don't really know why. I have a guess, but I've never spoken to him about it. I don't know. And um, so I was the only columnist who not only lost my job, salary, status etc but also the column that I had been led to believe I would be able to keep as a kind of 
starting point for my new what I assumed would be my new freelance life because if you lose your job as a journalist you're pretty sure you're not going to get another one because the industry is in decline um, so that was a very very traumatic time and because I was then single and didn't have a family and had work I, I did have great friends and so on but work my career had been really the focus of my life for so long and um, it was you know my kind of love my identity um, my sort of intellectual focus and in one moment that was taken away and it was very traumatic and I'd, I'd been through a lot of traumatic things I'd had cancer twice I'd lost half my family my father and sister had died um, and I dealt with as I said earlier sort of serious illness in my 20s but honestly losing my job because that was the thing I spent my whole life building up and it was absolutely devastating so I went to see various agents and I had a conversation with an agent and we together sort of um, I'd wanted to write essentially about how how you deal with suffering because that had been such a theme of my life from my mid-20s and um, and we sort of cooked up this idea of um, writing a book that was not exactly a self-help book it's not a self-help book but a kind of sort of a mix of self-help and memoir on sort of how we pick ourselves up when life goes belly up which it does for everybody at some point in their lives um, so that's where that came from and um, and I decided to do it as a kind of journalistic project so I set about interviewing people who had had very bad things happening to them including very very dear friends of my parents who'd lost two of their three children one son when he was a toddler and one son when he was I think in his 20s um, and then people who'd been suffered illness and um, you know all kinds of situations and I wove those interviews sort of interwove them with my own experience of job loss illness um, family illness you know you name it so it's a kind of mix of memoir and um, interviews about how we cope when life goes wrong so that's that's where that one came from and the, the again and the just, difficult and just sorry, sorry christine just to say for for everybody listening uh, your first book was called uh, the art of not falling apart and it just has had amazing reviews um uh, uh it is funny uh although given that description you've just given <laughs> you may not think there's humor in there but there's humor in there it's poignant uh, it's brilliantly written. So um, for anybody who's experiencing the kinds of challenges that you've just talked about, uh, I'd highly recommend it. That's very, very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. Well, it was a joy to write, actually. I think, for me anyway, the difficult part of writing a book is getting the ducks lined up. If you're lucky enough, I mean, it's hard to get an agent. It wasn't hard for me because I have been a professional writer for a long time. But but even when you have earned your living as a, by writing, which I had done, and have an agent, it's still not easy. And um, I was, so we worked together, I worked on a proposal with my agent for ages. And then I did get a lot of rejections before, before a publisher accepted. Not, I didn't write the whole book at that point. And a proposal is generally, um, I, I can't remember how long it was, maybe 20,000 20, words. Um, but it's a kind of outline, you, a kind of, a sample chapter or preface and then an, a very detailed outline and once I'd got the outline it was bliss to write I didn't find it difficult at all I wrote it in three months and I I loved it I, for me that's like my favorite thing in the world knowing 
you have something to write, knowing you've got a deal, knowing it's actually your job to write it. And I did write it and that was wonderful. And actually it was the same process for the memoir, the, the other memoir, um, Outside the Sky is Blue, which is once I got a deal, which was um, summer 2020 during the, after the first lockdown, um, again, I, I, I wrote it in about three months. And in both cases, the deadlines were quite tight. So from that point of view, it wasn't unlike, I mean, it was a much longer deadline, but it was only a deadline of a few months. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't tomorrow, but to write a book in a few months is, is quite a challenge. So I did work, I did, I, I did sort of was very, very focused on both of those things and absolutely loved, loved the process. And you said earlier on that you're a typical journalist in that you have a butterfly mind. Mm. And you do do so many things, you coach and you uh, broadcast and you write and uh, as a journalist and as an author. Of all of those things, if you could only do one, which would you do, Christina? Writing. And which type of writing? Writing as a journalist or writing as an author? Um, I, For me, writing is writing, uh, but books. I would write, you know, if I absolutely, you know, I would obviously write great works of literature if I could, but I would, if I could write as good a book as I could, if I carry on getting the opportunity. And I, I just want to ask you a few more things, if, if I can. Um, one is about your relationship with bosses, because you've said in the past that you're very relieved not to have a boss anymore. Mm. So, so tell me why. Tell me why you didn't like bosses. No, I did. I did like bosses. I've liked, um, I think, all my bosses except the one who fired me. <laughs> um, so, um, no, I've, in fact, a number of my bosses are still very good friends. In fact, I would say that, let me just think, two of my, two of my closest friends are former bosses. And, um, and I, I've, I have friends for whom a very close friend whose boss I was. So I, I'm not anti-bosses at all. Um, and, you know, I've had bosses uh, at The Independent who were, um, one in particular, actually, he's not a close friend, but I'm still on good terms with him. He's older, he's been retired for a while now. And Simon Kellner, the then editor of The Independent said, when he moved me to the comment desk, he said, It'll be like um, doing a PhD or whatever. My, my boss had worked um, at the FT. He'd worked in energy. He'd worked on, um, I think, reporting in LA on crime. He, he loved um, Middle Eastern art. He loved poetry. His son was strip searched at an airport once. And this is a kind of posh English man because he'd given him the, the middle name Hafez after Iran's major poet of the 14th century. Um, he was a, is a wonderful man and he taught me a great deal and I loved working for him. So I'm not anti-boss at all, but I had um, my last 18 months, I think at the independent, there was a change of regime. I didn't, who knows what happens in these situations, whether it's a chemistry thing or whatever, but a new editor, the editor I really liked, I'd liked all the editors up to then, the, ed the editor of the paper, Simon Kellner, was fired, a new editor was brought in, he's probably a very good friend of yours, we didn't get on, uh, he could well be because your business circles, but anyway, won't go there, and um, 
I don't know whether he took one look at me and disliked me. I really don't know what happened, but I didn't enjoy working with him. And, um, and another person came in and took over the job that my boss was then doing for reasons I won't go into. And she then ended up losing her job and I lost my job. And it was all very, very unpleasant. So I wouldn't, and I've been on boards and obviously if you're on a board, the chair is the boss. And um, you know, I'm not anti-boss, but A, at this point in my life, I couldn't, or rather when I left the independent, I was 49. Um, so I was, and it's very sad and a shame, but for um, a middle-aged woman, you're likely to get another job on a newspaper at that age is very low, certainly of the kind I had, which is, you know, being a columnist as a job. Um, and I didn't want to go into corporate comms or something like, like that. I probably could have done, but it's just not really my metier. And um, so I have opted for freedom. Freedom is a really important value for me. Of course, there's a massive downside because I can't say I'm that mad on my current boss, which is me, you know. I mean, I mean, in some ways, clearer parameters are often very helpful when you know you've got to do what you've got to do in a day and you're, you know, you've got to be at a desk at a certain time. I do generally work hard. Um, I've always been a hard worker, but um, having an actual boss can be a much more straightforward situation but um at this point in my life as you've said i with a butterfly mind i like the diversity of what i do there is a downside to that i think that um, a lot of people say you should specialize and i can absolutely see that from a business point of view that's a much better idea you know people say oh she's the person who does x and we'll ask her to do x and speak about x and if if succeeding in business terms were my aim, I would definitely have taken very different choices. Um, and sometimes I think I wish that was my aim, but it's not my aim. My aim is to have an interesting life and do interesting work and carry on enjoying the you know, richness and beauty and complexity of the world. And so I'm muddling through doing it my way. And, and tell me, in your view, what makes a good boss and what makes a less good boss? Yes, very good question. Um, a good boss is uh, somebody who cares about, I mean, obviously they have to understand the business they're in and they have to be focused on that. And their job is to help that organization or business or whatever else it is to flourish. But if they have no people skills, however good they are with the grand vision, they will not succeed because you have to get people on side, on side. And I think a good boss is someone who is genuinely able to inspire, genuinely believes in what they're doing, genuinely likes and wants to encourage and support their colleagues at every level, genuinely cares about their colleagues, genuinely listens to their colleagues, and genuinely sees it as a group enterprise and wants everybody to succeed and in my view um, the people who do not do that are those who have such enormous egos that they are focused on their own success. And that takes me on quite neatly to your podcast The Art of Work. So what was it that inspired you to start the podcast and, and what do you want to achieve with it? Mm. Well I started it like everybody else in the entire world during the lockdown um I'd wanted to do a podcast for years and I thought okay you know do it now and at that 
point, I was thinking, as I think we all were, what the hell is going to happen to work? You know, if we're living in this sort of pandemic state forever, how are we going to manage? How are we managing now? So at that point, I decided to call it Work Interrupted. And um, I had two series of 12 each, so 24 podcasts looking at sort of what was happening to work. But really, that was a kind of excuse to ask people about their careers and how they had developed and um, what they'd enjoyed about them, what they had enjoyed about them, what made their work worth doing. And then I realised that as we were starting to come out of the pandemic, um, I didn't want to talk about you know, it being sort of interrupted forever. And what fascinates me about work is that I think, um, it is, well, I think everything's an art really. Everything is both an art and a science, but I think I'm sort of fascinated by the fact that particularly in the business world, there are masses of best-selling business books, you know, in the kind of smart thinking table. I always want to call it the smart ass thinking table in bookshops because they basically, you know, I think they should be a newspaper column, a lot of them. They've got one little nugget of an idea and they've spun out 250 pages from that idea. And essentially the, the, the idea is if you look at the world through this particular tiny and slightly counterintuitive prism, which I have just identified, and do take the following actions, then you too will be a successful CEO or entrepreneur or whatever else it might be. And I'm really amazed that I assume business people buy them and that they are so gullible because of course it's not going to work and of course you can't look at the world through one lens that's absolutely ridiculous you know the world of business like every other world is extremely complicated and nuanced and there is no there are no formulae you know there might be seven habits of highly successful people I'm sure I don't do any of them and I can't even remember what they are but what we do know is that being good at anything is an art you acquire through study through practice through trial and error and, um, and if you want to create something beautiful, and I believe that that is part of the point of being alive, then you look at it with a kind of open heart and a clear eye, and you examine it and you ask questions and you listen to other people who you admire, who have created or achieved things you think are worth creating or achieving. And you constantly rethink and recalibrate your view and one hopes learn to do that incredibly difficult thing, which is adapt your own behavior to do or achieve or create something that is more like what you want to do or achieve or create. So I'm just interested to talk to people I admire about the work they do, what they find satisfying about it and how they've managed to do it. And that's why I decided to call it the art of work. Well, that's a wonderful way to, um, to finish our interview. Um, and your story is so inspiring, Christina. Uh, all that you've done in journalism, uh, your books, which are so powerful, as uh, we talked about earlier on, but also now what you're doing to try and help people understand the art of work and to know that it's really quite complicated and there isn't one simple formula to any of it. But thank you so much for being a guest on this edition of the Workle Happiness podcast, and we wish you every success in the future. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for your wonderful questions, Mark. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co, where you can find out how you can get happier at work.